you know, some of some of that obviously has been to very, very good effect and, and made it practice easier and better in a lot of ways. And some of it has not. Some of it has really just been, you know, made things more difficult. You know, more systems you have to interact with, more user interfaces. You have to be a, an expert in technology in a way that you didn't have to maybe 20 years ago. But I do think that there's a that there's a need here for a, kind of the next generation of uh, physicians and not just doctors, but also nurses and, and allied care professionals to recognize that we live in a technological environment. Everything that we're doing is connected online. Everything's network connected. Everyone's got a supercomputer in their pocket now. And this is, um, you know, this is the world that we live in and, you know, medical practice and, you know, nursing care and, um, you know, and, you know, just like technology development, you know, 20 years before, um, has, has to adapt. And, and we need to do th different things now and think differently about um, about our role here. Um, you know, I think industry has got an important responsibility here to not just toss half-baked crap, frankly, over the wall to physicians and say, you guys figure it out. That That is totally the wrong way to do it. Digitally driven behavior change. Healthcare wonder or black mirror? My name's Jeff, and this is How It's Med, the podcast where we chat with people shaping the future of health tech and medtech. This week, we continue our conversation with Michael Ferguson, the founder of Ayogo, the digital health company hoping to shape the future of how we modify behaviors for better health for our patients. Let's get started. This obvious roundabout from here is uh, the ethical implications of Ayogo's work. Yeah. Uh, how have you really considered that? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because I mean, I, I just think this is really the fundamental issue of our time almost. You know, it was thought for a long time that the real danger of artificial intelligence was super smart AI, right? AI that was smarter than the smartest of us. And, you know, we would get out of our control and, and do all these things. Well, it turns out the real danger is stupid AI. You know, there's a lot of systems that get built whose job it is to manipulate our behavior below the threshold of consciousness. And it's given really, really, really stupid goals. It turns out that human beings are actually very easy to manipulate. As long as your goals for that manipulation are quite narrow, if all you want is to make me more emotionally activated in order to make me more predictable, it's actually a very simple algorithm to do that. And the AI that Twitter and Facebook and Google apply there is really stupid. It's not interested in better social outcomes. It's not interested in better health. It's not interested in any of those things. It's just interested in making us a more predictable clicker so that they can make more money for their advertising. And this is, I think, you know, the, one of the biggest dangers to our society. We thought we were really sophisticated and difficult to manipulate. And it turns out we're really not. If all you want is just to get people to be predictable, you can activate people emotionally. More complex behaviors are much harder to get, obviously. But the simple behavior of just getting angry and yelling at the next person or clicking on a, angry, clicking on a, another uh, video in the list, that's actually pretty easy behavior to get. And if you figured out a way to monetize that, well, that's, that is a business model that just will just pour money into your pocket, but actually will destroy society. And most of that, most of that effect, you know, the, the sort of the architecture, the mechanisms of, of that effect are below the threshold of consciousness. And I think it's really unethical to be manipulating people with techniques that operate below the threshold of consciousness without telling them what you are doing and why. So anyone who uses one of a yoga systems is is first given control over the objectives saying you tell us what your goals are you know work together with your 
clinician in a shared decision-making kind of model to set the goals for yourself. And then we tell you, yes, what we are going to do is we're going to provide you with a set of choices that we built for you based on how we understand you to try to guide you towards the goals that you've told us you want. And we think that's an ethical approach to behavior change, behavior changing systems. I mean, there's a bit more to it than that, but that's a, an, a really important part of it. Yogo signed the digital health um, uh, equity pledge, and we're interested in not just informed consent, but also systems that are alive to the diversity of human beings and human beings' goals and, and ways of being in the world to make sure that, you know, the systems that we build are, you know, humanistic first. And, um, you know, there, there's things that we could accomplish by manipulating people. Um, and maybe even some of those might even be thought of as being socially good goals, but we think you lose your soul when you do that. And it's very important to, you know, to get people's informed consent and be transparent about what you're doing. I'm a bit curious then from a psychology perspective, how is it that you can manipulate the audience if they know they're being manipulated? Well, I mean, you're manipulating me right now, right? I mean, you, you talked me into coming onto this podcast and you know, you, you did it by promising me some very interesting questions and an interesting conversation and you're both very charming, charming young men, you know, and, and so here I am, <laughs> you know, you've influenced, you've influenced me and. And that's good. That's what I wanted. I want interesting conversations. You said, Hey, Michael, would you like to have a really interesting conversation about something that matters to you? That's important. And I said, yeah, hell yeah. I'll take that 11 times out of 10. That was a, convers a conversation between you and I as equals, you know, where we each had access to equivalent information and uh, you didn't try to do anything, you know, underhanded to make me behave the way that you wanted. That's the kind of relationship that we want to have with all the end users of our systems, whether they're patients or clinicians. I guess in terms of, uh, you know, you've answered the question about the ethics of, you know, behavioral change overall, mm. but how do you deal with the ramifications or the interactions between healthcare's very tight policies around data gathering mm. and what you do? Because without, you know, without ongoing gathering of data, you can't really change your algorithm to improve it and make sure that it better fits the patient hand. Um, but at the same time, trying to get data out of healthcare systems or healthcare practices is, is like pulling teeth, rightly so. Sure, yeah. Well, I mean, maybe even harder than pulling teeth, let's hope, you know, for certain kinds of data. <laughs> um, yeah, well, you know, I mean, we're just, we're just a company operating in the world, you know, we're just a, a, a cork bobbing on the waves of the, of this big ocean. You know, the, there are things that are best done by industry, you know, innovating and building things and being driven by, you know, the profit motive when we're a for-profit company, you know, profit motive drives a lot of human behavior. It drives our behavior and creates incentives for us. Mm -hmm. And there are things that should definitely not be left to industry. And, um, because the profit motive has no place there, it's a, it's the, it's the space of governments and foundations and nonprofits. And one of those things is regulatory regimes. I think that industry cannot be trusted to self-regulate here. There's too much money, too much money. And it's just going to drive people's behavior. And it already has driven people's behavior in all kinds of awful ways. So we're big fans of, I mean, even though it constrains our business and makes our life harder and in so many ways, it would just be so easy if we could just do unethical things, right? But you no know, GDPR has been really good. HIPAA is a great start. Pepita here in Canada. I mean, there's these regulatory frameworks are important. And I think it's important that they are, that we 
you know, that we push as individual citizens, not just as business people that, you know, and, and as clinicians and engineers and, you know, and, and, and all the people, you know, as society that we push our governments to ensure that we have regulatory regimes that are well informed by the current state of technology, but also the values of our society. And, you know, and a yoga just, we know our job is to live within that. And when we're, where we see the regulations fall short, you know, we can set an example, we can work together with other companies and, and, you know, you know, try to be an exemplar. Um, but we don't see it as our job to make other people do things any particular way. I mean, we're just trying to live the best way that we know how, and then feel good about ourselves and go to bed at night. And if the regulations are ahead of us, then that's great. We've got a target to go to. And if the regulations are behind us, well, that's unfortunate, but that doesn't, that doesn't keep us from the um, obligation that we feel, I feel, and everybody in a yoga feels, I know to live our values. That's fascinating that you mentioned that because, uh, in like offline, we talked about how a lot of, uh, Ayoka's work is non-shredding. Mm. And for those listeners who don't know what shred is, it's basically a tax credit that incentivizes, uh, if I'm not incorrect, Michael, uh, innovation R and D essentially. Yeah. Um, but, uh, it seems like behavioral change. Uh, doesn't seem to fall within the, the, the purview of that, um, you know, of that field. Yeah. Why do you think that is? And do you think this will impede the growth of the digital health sector, which I guess ultimately often will aim to incentivize behavioral change to increase adherence to certain therapies? Yes, but I think it does clearly. I mean, this is obviously an example where the, it, it's interesting that it's, it's actually not in the statute, right? It's not in the legislation a regulatory framework of SRNED, scientific research and experimental development, SRNED tax credits. It's actually a policy of the CRA. And I think that policy has been in place for a long time and it actually is not serving us very well now. And the policy is that social sciences are not survivable. So any innovation or scientific research you do in social sciences and, you know, from our point of view, psycho human psychology and behavior change is kind of the key piece there for us is not survivable at all. And despite the fact we're doing, we think really no real important experimental development. We're not a, we're not a scientific research organization. We think there is important scientific research should be done here, but from an experimental development point of view, this is where we spend all day, every day, um, is doing experimental development in this area. And none of it is threadable that has cost us, you know, several million dollars over the last few years and, you know, relative to companies in other uh, in other areas, and it is driving innovation away from our space and into other spaces. On the one hand, if you if you want to, you know, remain an independent company, and on the other hand, it's driving us to take U.S. venture capital and lose control of our companies earlier because we have to raise more money. I think it is not a healthy dynamic, and I think that you know CRA needs to do something about it. But you know, again, we're just a small company, and there's only so much that we can do. I've done everything I can to raise this issue with every, every politician, every legislator, every regulator I speak to, I mentioned it at some point, sort of getting a reputation as being the thread complainer, but, um, thread guy. but, but I do think it's important. It's just an example, you know, just to your earlier point, it's just an example of how we can let the regulations fall behind the current state of the art. And we need to always be working to make sure that we're keeping things up to date. To push back against you then, Michael, why do you think these regulations were in place to begin with? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's for good reasons. I, you know, I, I expect that the reason that it was done in the first place was to try to avoid things like, you know, advertising systems and stuff like that, you know, marketing programs, 
um, being spreadable. I, I don't doubt that there were very well-meaning people who put these policies in place for very good reasons. It just, at this point, it is completely impenetrable. <laughs> you know, the CRA is impenetrable at the best of times. And somewhere inside CRA, there's some council of people who's making decisions and I have no way of speaking to them. I don't know if they've ever heard this message from me. And, and there's no way to, there appears to be no good way to influence it, except to go in through the political side, which seems like a pretty blunt instrument. If you're a company that's trying to, you know, work in six, 12, 18 month innovation cycles. So, you know, again, there's only so much a company our size can do, but, but I think, um, you know, I, I hope here in Canada, generally we can get better at evolving our policies more quickly than, um, you know, it's an opportunity for Canada, frankly, to be a leader in thinking about how our legislation and our regulatory frameworks better reflect our values and goals as a society. And hopefully we can avoid some of the scenes that we've seen south of the border with senators asking just absurdly stupid questions of religious executives. I mean, we, you know, I'm not a full technocrat. I don't think we should just turn our legislation over to, <laughs> to researchers and, and academics. But I, but I do think that there's a need here for politicians to, and regulators to listen to experts in the field. To move away from politics for a second, let's take it back to the company. What are you guys working on? We are working hard to transform the way that patients transition from, um, you know, late stage kidney disease to renal failure. There's a lot that happens in that time that's very difficult and challenging. Uh, and, and, and we really believe we can make a real difference in people's lives. People that are struggling, you know, something like 60% of all patients with stage four kidney disease have a crash or unplanned start on dialysis. That is a really awful, horrifying statistic, and we really should do something about it. <laughs> and I think, you know, there's lots of people who can play a part in that, but Ayogo, that this is, we feel this is really at the heart of our expertise. It is helping people make these transitions to be ready for them, to think them through carefully, to engage with their clinicians, share decision-making processes and establish a common language for talking about what clinical health care goals, clinical goals, your care plan can match up together with your life plan. And beyond renal care, we're thinking about, you know, other therapeutic areas that we can travel to next. Um, there's a lot of really interesting use cases, we think, and in muscle sclerosis and, and, and conditions like that. So, you know, we're, we're, we're doing our early stage research there to, to think about our next generation of product. That's certainly fascinating. And I mean, some of the speaks from the healthcare side. I'm really wondering, you know, what can healthcare providers or people who are advocates for the adoption and use of ancillary, like behavioral modification technologies or digital uh, health technologies do to help advance the adoption of tools which can improve patient outcomes despite pushback from within? Mm -hmm. Well, I hate to push more responsibility onto physicians. Right. Because there's, you know, there's so much to be done there, you know, and you're expected to be an expert in so many things all the time, you know, just in the last 15, 20 years, you know, a whole new era of technology was, you know, kind of foisted on, on you know, some of, some of that obviously has been to very, very good effect and, and made it practice easier and better in a lot of ways. And some of it has not, some of it has really just been you know, made things more difficult, you know, more systems you have to interact with, more user interfaces, you have to be a, an expert in technology in a way that you didn't have to maybe 20 years ago. But I do think that there's a, there's a need here for a kind of the next generation of uh, physicians and not just doctors, but also nurses and, and this allied 
healthcare professionals to recognize that we live in a technological environment. Everything that we're doing is connected online. Everything's network connected. Everyone's got a supercomputer in their pocket now. And this is, um, you know, this is the world that we live in and medical practice and, you know, nursing care and, you know, just like technology development, you know, 20 years before has to adapt. And, and we need to do th different things now and think differently about, about our role here. Um, you know, I think industry has got an important responsibility here to not just toss half-baked crap, frankly, over the wall to physicians and say, you guys figure it out. That, that is totally the wrong way to do it. You know, we need, you know, good industry validation, regulatory frameworks. There's a whole bunch of stuff we need to do to make sure that the digital therapeutics and the digital solutions that we're delivering into the healthcare system are properly validated and are designed well. It's not just about uh, clinical validation, but also about user acceptance testing and experience design validation. If we can do those things well, then we can put good tools in the hands of, of the healthcare professionals who are ultimately the ones that are responsible for the care of the patients, right? You have to put good tools in their hand. And with those tools, I think there's a real role and a key role for the clinicians to play here to guide their patients towards a better, healthier relationship with their care and, and the data that their care is generating, right? Most healthcare is data-driven in, in a way that patients don't see because it's kind of hidden inside the EMR or it's, you know, it's off in the cloud somewhere. But, you know, we need to make sure that patients understand that, you know, it's not just about the explicit choices you're making and the things that you do, that there's this sort of digital footprint, fingerprint that you have everywhere. And it's actually an important part of your healthcare. You need to understand what it is and how it works and and, and how to properly utilize it to get to your health goals as a patient. So on the flip side of that, I mean, you, you just talked about patients and health providers, but what can technical experts like self or those who are, you know, more T-shaped than mm. said, uh, do to help advance the field of digital therapeutics and the adoption of these tools? Yeah, well, okay. I don't, I don't want to get political right away with your question, but I, but I do think that there's, there's, there's something important to say about it, right? Which is that our, we, we need to change the way that we think about success from an, uh, an industry point of view. It's not just about making money. I mean, there are, there are plenty of things that make money that are actually terrible. You know, I mean, I, I was just having this conversation with somebody about homeopathy. I mean, if the only measure of your success is, does it make money? Then I guess homeopathy is a huge success, but we know that it's complete garbage. And in fact, for the most part, gets in the way of people doing the things that they actually really need to do to be healthy, right? It's actually, it's actually bad for many people who avoid engaging with real therapies in favor of the pseudoscience. So it's important, you know, from an engineering and a technical and business point of view that we are not just thinking like, does the, does this thing work the way I designed it? Or does this thing make money? But also does this increase human flourishing? That's actually the real measure of our success. And, you know, we need to bring that lens to everything that we're doing, you know, from engineering to experience design, you know, to business model creation. And, and, um, and I, and I think that it's especially incumbent on the, the part of the, the, the people in this picture, the stakeholders that are coming from the business and technology side are, are you know, we, we're not used to, we, none of us have taken a Hippocratic oath. It's something that's very like every, in the healthcare side, my wife's a nurse and I, I know a lot of people who are, uh, are healthcare professionals. It's just second nature to them. Yeah, of course, my job is human flourishing. That's what I do. Right. And, but that's actually, that's something that we have to adopt more. We have to be more explicit about it on, on the, on the technical and business side.
uh, of this sort of stakeholder table so that we can properly engage in the conversation in the right way. That was a beautiful answer. I really enjoyed that. To close off, I'd like to just ask you a very simple question. What, what, would, what advice would you give your 15, 16 year old self since you've had such a, a different journey? Wow. Um, when you meet that beautiful young woman in Prince George, definitely accept her offer of wearing her, her sweater in front of the campfire, even though it's too small for you. You'll look silly, but you'll be, you'll thank me later. That's the that's first piece of advice. I would all, I would say, you know, stay curious, you know, that every success you're going to have in your life is built from some combination of curiosity and love and diligence. When you work hard and you're curious and you have love in your heart, everything you do is good. So you know, just focus on those things and everything's going to work out for you. Last thing, are there any pluggables that you'd like to plug? Any social media profiles, LinkedIn, et cetera? Well, sure. So for those people out there whose backgrounds are, you know, healthcare or technology and are interested in, in industry, we are, we're pretty sort of inside out company and we publish, um, a lot of our sort of internal culture stuff gets published onto Instagram and Facebook. That's one good way to find our company there and see what it's like to be us. And if you're interested in the work that we're doing from a sort of customer facing point of view, you can find us on LinkedIn companies called Ayogo, A-Y-O-G-O and ayogo.com. And of course, anyone out there should feel free to reach out to me directly on LinkedIn, uh, Michael Ferguson, uh, two S's in Ferguson. And I just love to hear from new people and, and love to hear what people are working on. That's interesting. Thank you for listening to this episode of How It's Med. If you liked what you heard, please download and rate our episodes on whatever platform you listen on. Also, if you have any feedback on what you just heard, we'd love to hear it wherever you listen to or on our website, howitsmed.com. That way we can create better content that suits you. Till next time, bye-bye.